back, ladies and gentlemen, to another week at the Northern Miner Podcast. And I'm your host, Matthew Keevil. As usual, we are brought to you by the Yukon Mining Alliance. Please do hop over to yukonminingalliance.ca to check out all the exciting exploration and development activity going on in Canada's Yukon Territory. And this is episode 70 for the week of August 14th. Yes, we took a brief hiatus last week because I was uh, off in Quebec on a family vacation. So uh, doing what most people do in August, uh, hopping out of the office for a little while, taking advantage of those vacation days. Uh, we know we're going to get uh, really busy again in September. So it's always uh, always pays off to take uh, a little bit of that vacation time during these August months. Uh, and I'm sure everyone else has noticed the news flow has slowed down. Trade volumes are slowing down uh, as we sort of ease into the uh, end of summer here. Um, and it's, uh, it's been a lovely one outside of those forest fires. Uh, I missed a little bit of the hazy uh, hazy shade, as they say, as Simon and Garfunkel say, here during the forest fire season. But uh, it has cleared off now, and uh, we're back in action in Vancouver here. Uh, so, uh, yeah, we are, as promised, I have the full unabridged Robert Friedland interview this week. Uh, we are uh, running a little bit backlogged on content here, trying to get everything out. Uh, Leslie's Geology Corner will likely be returning next week with a special on geophysics, so look forward to that. Uh, but this week, yes, the uh, bulk of our episode will be taken up by the unabridged Robert Friedland session. Uh, and this features our group publisher, Anthony Vaccaro, who uh, serves as moderator. Uh, but this runs around 41 minutes, so it's a lengthy one. Uh, but we did have a significant amount of requests for this audio. Uh, we ran about a 14-minute segment uh, a couple weeks ago, and it was one of our most popular ones. Uh, people love to hear Robert talk, and uh, this one is a doozy. There's a lot of ground covered. Uh, as noted, uh, there'll be a little bit of overlap because uh, we did run a bit of it earlier, but uh, there's a lot of new stuff in here because it does run a good 40 minutes. So uh, we will be running that in a bit, in a little bit. Uh, but first, uh, we'll do our touch of macro really quick, uh, just catch up on what's going on around globally in terms of macroeconomics then we'll run uh, the Friedland piece in its entirety and uh, just so everybody can enjoy that during the summer months uh, once again there isn't a huge amount of news going on and uh, this is just something to help uh, keep things really lively because uh, this is a really cool discussion between our group publisher Anthony and uh, Robert Friedland on a variety of topics so this is a good one for the summer months uh, but before we get to that uh, we will crack through with a little bit of our macro update which not surprisingly deals a little bit with socio-political turmoil uh, is in on gold, copper, etc. So uh, let's get cracking with that. Firstly, yes, the newswire has been dominated, as we know, by ongoing news about the situation that is evolving between North Korea and the nuclear scenario with the United States. Uh, that did push gold up towards that 1300 per ounce range the last couple weeks. Uh, it did meet, once again, resistance at those levels, however, and it was down about $6.80 per ounce today to nearly $1,287 per ounce. Uh, this was retreated from a two-month high as these uh, U.S.-North Korea tensions seem to be subsiding for now. Uh, this has resulted in a slightly stronger U.S. dollar as well as reducing safe haven demand. Uh, Bullion had been looking to test, as mentioned, that $1,300 per ounce mark for the third time this year a level which has proven to provide, as we noted, a very strong resistance. Uh, this means, Scotiabanks notes, that any future retest could be met with some selling. Uh, total gold ETFs were up 36,000 ounces on Friday. In terms of major currencies, the uh, pro-risk environment has weakened the safe havens that benefited from risk aversion last week. Uh, the U.S. dollar has strengthened, as noted, while the Canadian dollar is weak versus the U.S. dollar and what Scotiabank classifies as a mid-performer among the G10 in an environment of broad-based U.S. dollar strength. 
Meanwhile, our headline base metals were largely in the red to start the week, with copper down 0.3% at $2.90 per pound, while zinc was down 1.4% at $1.31 per pound. Furthermore, the headline of the Times for Copper remains supply disruptions. Glencore's Zambian Mopani Copper Mines Unit suspended operations in certain areas on Saturday after the Copper Belt Energy Corporation, CEC, restricted power supply to its sites. The company said that the decision comes after a dispute over the implementation of new electricity tariffs, which Mopani and other mining companies continue to contest. First Quantum's copper business unit in Zambia reports it is also contesting the tariffs, though it continues to operate. And as we know, these stories simply add to a laundry list of copper supply disruption stories we've heard to start the year, uh, not least of which is the ongoing situation in Indonesia between Freeport McMoran and the Indonesian government about the Grasberg operation, which remains unresolved in terms of their contract of work. Uh, Also on site, there have been um, reportedly unionized employees that have been on strike since May. So we'll continue to watch that uh, Grasberg situation as it evolves, Uh, notably uh, more copper supply offline from Glencore in Zambia. So uh, just something to watch. Copper prices have been rallying recently, uh, both on uh, positive economic data out of China in terms of industrials and also, as mentioned, these supply side stories. So we'll continue to keep our eye on that as we move forward. Uh, but yes, let's uh, let's crack right on through. Uh, two words are Robert Freeland exclusive. Uh, This is once again from our Canadian Mines Symposium in May. Uh, We will be running this week the uh, interview in its entirety. So this is a a great session, uh, runs about 40 minutes, uh, and as mentioned, uh, is moderated by our group publisher, Anthony Vaccaro. So I'll run that and then uh, we'll have some new and uh, awesome content for you again next week. Uh, So do tune in. Uh, We should be around for the foreseeable future now, short of some more vacation time, which uh, it's a good time of year to do it. So uh, Leslie should be back next week with uh, another geology corner we'll look forward to that uh, but this has been matthew kiva with the northern miner podcast thanks again for listening remember to like us on facebook follow us on twitter and rate this podcast on itunes and we will talk to you next week i'm right and curious minds in attendance here today and um while we're celebrating obviously your your great achievements that you've already accomplished Uh, It's also very interesting to get your perspective on where things are going. And I know you have a lot of interesting thoughts around um, how the mining sector relates to the environmental challenges that that man has created. And that's going to tie into fiscal policy. Can you talk a little bit about your thesis around the coming fiscal policy and how that might relate to the mining industry and what kind of minerals we'll be pursuing going forward? Governments uh, have made money uh, basically free around the world, even though the United States government is talking about two or three more interest rate hikes this year. uh, The nominal cost of money is actually less than incipient inflation. So in real terms, money is still in the United States free and around the world it's free. We've had this uh, coordinated uh, monetary stimulation, which is no longer the printing of money. Money is no longer printed. It's just a digital entry where somebody hits the zero key uh, a number of times. And so the quantity of money has grown, and yet the, uh, the world economy is now just engaging in a very, very slow, labored, coordinated recovery. We're in the early stages of a global recovery. And uh, basically, money is free everywhere. Uh, you still 
something like 30% of central bank money in the world is still at, at even you know, clear negative interest rates. So we've sort of used up all the cocaine or stimulus that central bankers can uh, provide on a global scale. And we're not really getting that big kick that the Donald is looking for, which is 3% US GDP growth. So the answer uh, with the central banks having sort of gotten tired of their finger hitting that zero key, we now have to engage in um, what they call fiscal policy or, or government deficit spending. And, and clearly the best rationale for government deficit spending is the environment. Uh, provision of adequate water, clean air um, for the planet, especially in urban environments, because it's mainly urban people that vote, um, drives governments to, to say that they're going to get into deficit spending to clean air and water, and that's really very good for certain raw materials. And there's just no way to get there from here if you want to clean the air. Uh, actually, this is about the first time since all of us were born that Great Britain did not mine a single kilogram of coal. None. Zero. It was announced a couple of weeks ago. When Maggie Thatcher came in power here, she immediately got into a fight with the coal mining unions. And in the old days out here, you could barely see the air. All these limestone buildings were black. There is no more coal mined in Great Britain today. None. Zero. Absolutely zero. First time that's ever happened in our lifetime. So that's a Vujadeh phenomenon. So we have to start thinking about what will happen if we reduce 10% of world petroleum demand, what will happen to the price of oil. So it's very clear that we're, in, we're anyway, without government policy, we're in a period of very profound and fundamental change. But of course, governments want to get on that bandwagon, and so the new French government will engage in deficit spending, having something to do with the environment, to clean the air in Paris. And that'll be a global phenomenon. Right here in London, all these buses are going to be hydrogen fuel cell buses momentarily. And so that's good. That's, that's, that's a good perception. That's where government policy is going. Excellent. And so, I mean, it's very easy to see that you'd be bearish on a commodity like coal. I'll just infer that. But what commodities are you going to be bullish on, given that framework and given that the, the context that you just set up going forward? I mean, everything's going to completely change in the next 10 years. We'll probably have more, more change in the next 10 years than in the last 100. Because the sum total of all the world's technologies are aggregating. Uh, and so one of the fundamental themes is that about 60% of hydrocarbon consumption is in urban transportation. Buses, trucks, and cars. And clearly that industry is going to be profoundly disrupted in our lifetime. And, and so the fundamental theme there is light weighting. You've got to make these cars lighter, and they still have to be crash resistant, because they still will crash if we ever get to autogenous cars in 10 or 20 years, probably closer to 20 years. They still will crash. So when you make a car out of uh, carbon fiber, it doesn't absorb much impact. It's very brittle. Uh, when I was a kid, if you had a Corvette, it was made out of fiberglass. It was really hard to fix it. It was like body work on a surfboard and I fixed it. The beauty of aluminum is that it crumples beautifully. It absorbs impact. Uh, fraternity kids in America like to crush beer cans on their forehead as a trick. Works quite well if you get it just right. So uh, cars are going to be made out of aluminum. Trucks are going to be made out of aluminum. 
Trains are going to be made of aluminum, and specialty alloys of aluminum that are very light and cheap and easy to recycle. And we're inside the automobile industry. We, this is a really big deal. The Ford F-150 pickup truck, which is the biggest source of cash flow for Ford, is already made out of aluminum. But you're going to see that right across the fleet. So that's good for the aluminum industry, not so good for iron ore, actually. Well, and this kind of touches upon something I think would be of interest to our audience, and that is that um, while you clearly came out of this exploration background, that now you're, you have many interests outside of specifically mining, but also it's about how mining touches other sectors. Um, you have significant interest in tech companies. You have interest in, uh, in Hollywood Film Studio. Um, I'd like to kind of acknowledging that and you know, taking your perspective um, from those kind of industries and kind of looking back at the mining sector, what sort of things can mining executives offer the broader world at this particular, because we are at this interesting juncture in our, in our history, and mining executives, do you have a particular skill set? Do you see that there's certain things that would be of benefit to other sectors? Wow. I mean, everything we're touching in this room, we either mined it or we grew it agriculturally. There are no exceptions, including whatever I'm sitting on. We mined the legs of this chair. We mined this microphone. And we obviously we mined and made the electricity and the lights in here. Uh, I think the distinction about uh, differentiating mining from everything else is just something created in our minds. It is the most basic of all industries. I think early in the evolution of our species, we now know that chimpanzees take a stick, you know, and they go mining for ants, poke them in the ground. Uh, the earliest flint tools were mined. When you look at the oldest evidence of our species evolving, we mined flint and made little, little tools that people still categorize as being very important. So uh, I'd like to forget about this distinction between mining and everything else. I think geologists are very left-brained people that can think in complex three dimensions and can intuit as a very abstract historical processes, maybe a billion or two billion years old. And uh, the, the skill sets that young people should learn about mining should apply to everything. I just, we should just forget about the distinction. We, should, we just need to do a better job of explaining to people in urban environments that mining, uh, the, the human activity of mining, um, is absolutely fundamental to the way this planet is going to evolve. I mean, completely and totally fundamental. So, I mean, I'm always fond of saying that people that live in big cities think that a ham sandwich comes from a refrigerator. They never really visualize literally tens of millions of pigs being slaughtered outside Chicago in a river of blood. They just ask for that ham sandwich. There's a very good film made in Sweden, which all of you should see. You can find it on the internet. It's called Our Daily Bread. Uh, some Swedish people made it. There is no dialogue in this film at all, none. It just takes a camera, cinema verite, and shows you where our food comes from. It starts out with people picking lettuce, and it works its way up the food chain to chickens, and then it gets to pigs, and kind of near the end of the film, you're getting into parts that are kind of hard to handle for the average person. But I guarantee you, you'll never look at your breakfast the same way again. I'm beginning to regret doing this panel right before lunch, so let's... So, you know, the, 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 the fact is that we're so divorced 
from everything in an urban environment. In the old days in the American West, uh, that's where all the rednecks lived. They're, they're ranchers, they're miners, they're in oil and gas. They had, to, they had to kill that pig, or they had to kill that chicken and put it on the table. So there was much more direct sort of involvement with how life has struggled. And now we're in this very abstract environment, primarily dominated by broadband, wireless, and media. And so something has to be done to think very consciously where are we trying to go, how are we trying to get there, and what do we need to get there from here. And clearly, I mean, I just, I nearly killed myself getting here by 11 a.m. this morning through this traffic. I mean, London traffic is nearly ground to a halt. And, uh, you know, we're obviously going to have to have transportation in the third dimension. We can't keep everything in, these, in this city. We're going to have to go airborne with taxis. And you all know that a car spends 97% of its time stationary in America. They build a car. It doesn't even move for most of its life. So we're clearly we're going to have airborne autonomous vehicles in our lifetime. There are a lot of people really working on this problem. And it all started with the accidental, um, uh, the accidental discovery of the Chinese kids on these drones that you buy. Uh, there's a company which you should all Google called Ehang184. E-H-A-N-G-184. These are some kids that want to be Bill Gates in China. And they started out selling these drones that you buy at Walmart. It's put a little camera. And they were very successful. They made a lot of money. And now they've made an airborne electric vehicle that you get in and you don't ever need to drive it. You just enter into your iPad where you want to go. And it flies you there. It's quite fantastic. You should see the video. The government of Dubai is now going to introduce them as air taxis. And this came out of China, just some kids out of China. Now, right now, they're using a lithium-ion battery. And the thing flies at about 50 or 60 miles an hour. It's quite a pucker factor when you get in it, probably the first time. But you just say where you want to go. And in the future, you just tell it where you want to go, because they'll have the equivalent of Siri, probably a female voice, and say, I want to go to this Northern Miner Symposium. Get me there from here, you get here in a few minutes. And instead of trying, look at those, those cars are not moving, right? So um, now they're looking at converting this thing from a lithium-ion battery to a hydrogen fuel cell. And when you put a hydrogen fuel cell in it, it'll fly for closer to 70 minutes rather than 22 minutes, which really extends its range. And now they're going to work on a four-person variety. And these things are absolutely stable. I mean, you can come in the room here and just hover. And you put a little transponder on your back porch, like the size of a dime. You just say, take me home, and it'll take you there. And drop you off and go pick up somebody else. 90% of the value of this thing is going to be in the software, because you get in it. There'll be three-dimensional holographic entertainment. Or you can have a board meeting or make love to your girlfriend. Because you're not going to actually fly it. You don't have to have a pilot's license. I mean, it's, it's wonderful to talk to you because right. you really get the sense that the future is closer really than we think. And this thing has been built. Like, just go to Ehang 184. This thing's flying. The government of Dubai is introducing air service with these things this year in 2017. This is not 10 years from now. So you know that Amazon wants to deliver a pizza to your backyard with a drone. And you know, the military has drones that are the size of insects. They just, you, know, you leave your window open, one of these things can fly in your bedroom at night, not only photograph you, but drill a hole in your head. You know, <laughs> terrifying, the size of an insect. So, you know, so there's a lot of, there's going to be a burgeoning field in anti-drone warfare. 
So there's so much stuff happening so fast, but all of it goes back to the critical raw materials. That, uh, when, they, when they take that drone and they put it in hydrogen fuel cell, they need platinum for the proton exchange membrane. No one's been able to get rid of the platinum, knock on wood, so far in that proton exchange membrane. Uh, and even these little drones that you buy at Walmart, uh, they're going to convert them to fuel cells. So they're going to fly for about an hour, hour and a half. So drones are opening soon at a theater near you. You know, and it's kind of scary when you get in the first one. It's only been about a hundred years since the Wright brothers started all this. And when, when a little child is in a cradle and looks up and sees an Airbus 380 fly by, that Airbus 380 is part of nature. Yeah. It's like a bird to a kid. And pretty soon these kids are going to see these drones flying by and they're going to be like part of nature. Well, what's your reaction to some of these innovations that you're seeing? Is it one of excitement? Is it one of fear? Is it a strange mix of the two? This is great stuff. Like, uh, you know, we, we, I'm trying to get our mining company to keep on hiring kids between, say, 20 and 27 years of age because they're not burdened by all of our previous thinking, you know. And mining is one of the last industries that's going to be profoundly disrupted. You know, we think mining industry is going to change completely in the next 20 years. And we want to be part of that process rather than following it. Can you, shed a little, you can you shed a little more light on that? What aspects do you think are going to be, where is that dis, what form is that disruption going to take within the mining industry? So now we're getting to the stuff I really wanted to talk about. <laughs> so um, at any given moment today on the continent of Australia, 16% of the electrical energy, one 6%, is either crushing or grinding rock. And so that's many, many, many nuclear power plants equivalents. Each one is a gigawatt, thousand, you know, thousand megawatts or a gigawatt. Typical nuclear power plant unit is a, you know, 1,000 megawatts. So there's probably the equivalent of 30 nuclear power plants crushing or grinding rock on the Australian continent at any moment. So when they mine iron ore, they grind this stuff down to talcum powder. They mine any other kind of ore. It's very energy intensive. Now, we think that uh, new technology is going to come to reduce that energy consumption by 99% using very powerful electromagnetic pulses that came out of uh, atomic weaponry and electromagnetic pulse weaponry. It's possible to cause rock to just not want to be rock anymore. It doesn't think it's rock anymore. So we'll start with physics, and it's all very counterintuitive, but the, the, the very first atomic bomb which was developed by uh, Dr. Oppenheimer, uh, made a ball of uranium about that big. It's called the pip. And you had to squeeze that ball of uranium metal from all sides within about a billionth or two billionths of a second. And they used C5 chemical explosive to implode that bomb. And that was the trigger, that's the hard part. And if you implode it properly, you squeeze it from all sides, you, get, you then get a mushroom cloud and a two kilometer wide crater where we're sitting. And uh, later on, the superpowers realized that they didn't need C5 plastic explosive. It could be done with an electromagnetic field. You put an electrically uh, conductive blanket around the uranium pit and use a, you know, you have, when you have a magnet, you have the attractive force of the magnet and the repulsive force. Using the repulsive force, directing the magnetic field in, you get the mushroom cloud. There's actually a moment I've really learned a lot about atomic weaponry. It's very interesting stuff. Uh, the fat boy in North Korea is making enormous progress in this field. 
Um, there's actually a moment if, if we have an atomic bomb sitting between us where we're having a casual and rational conversation about mining, but the bomb has already decided to go off. It's at the initiation of the process. The time dimension is measured in three or four billionths of a second. The chain reaction has begun, but we're still having a little conversation, like in the mouse that roared, remember that guy riding that atom bomb on the way down? But the initiation has decided to occur, like at, you know, 40 billionths of a second from now, it's going to be 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit. So that, that first moment, that first initiation of that nuclear weapon is the hard part. When you speculate, can Iran do it? Can Pakistan do it? Can the fat boy in North Korea do it? Actually, they can. It's not that hard. But the way it's done is with a very powerful electromagnetic field in the more advanced way. That's the way the Americans do it. Russians, uh, Chinese, Israelis, Americans, Pakistanis. This technology is now known. Now we can turn it to mining. You need a supercapacitor. You need an ultracapacitor that compresses electrical energy. When metal is uh, subjected to an electromagnetic field that's strong enough, it doesn't want to be metal anymore. It doesn't think it's metal without getting hot. This is amazing. Like you have a fork or a knife or a spoon if you, if you subject that metal to a very powerful electromagnetic field, it just gives up. It thinks it's a liquid. And then when you turn off the electromagnetic field, it goes back to being a metal again. And it never gets hot. There's no wasted energy, because the heat would be wasted energy. So what we think of in our brain as being a solid or a metal is not. It's just a matter in a slightly different form. Those of you that like Star Trek, uh, you see that pulse drive. You know, right? Warp drive. That's just a very powerful electromagnetic pulse. That's exactly how an atomic weapon is, is detonated. So it can be done by the compression of electrical energy. So to further entertain you, uh, Thomas Alva Edison uh, developed the world's first light bulb. It was about that big. And uh, he originally wanted to make the filament out of nickel. So he was a miner. A lot of people don't know that Thomas Alva Edison was a miner. He went to Sudbury, Ontario, and he sunk a shaft looking for nickel, because nobody was using nickel in 1882. And he almost found the nickel ore body that he was looking for in Sudbury. He gave up. He couldn't find enough nickel. So he made that first filament out of tungsten. And then he turned on this light bulb in his garage. It was the first light bulb in the history of our species. You know, the electricity was generated with a steam engine. They burned coal. The steam engine turned around and made direct current. The current went through a wire into the filament, into the first light bulb. Holy shit, it turned on. And he thought, now what am I going to do? He was a miner, Thomas Alva Edison. What am I going to do now? There's no place to sell light bulbs because there's no place to screw one in. There's no infrastructure for these damn things. So he created a penny stock. He was a promoter. And the company was called the New York Electric Light Illumination Company. He cut a deal with New York City to string these lights, DC, direct current lights. Remember when you were a kid with a Christmas tree, if one of the lights went out, the whole string went out. He strung these DC lights down Fifth Avenue, 1883. And the deal was that he was charging New York City for electric illumination. The year before, they were still burning whale oil on Fifth Avenue. They were going and mining sperm whales. 
and taking their oil and burning it in these lamps for high-quality illumination because the rich people lived on Fifth Avenue. So here comes this guy with a New York electric light illumination company. I think he went public at 17 cents a share, and his market cap was around 200,000 US, which was you know, significant money in 1882, but it wasn't gigadollars. And I'm sure you all know that, that company today is called General Electric, right? And he was a miner. And he disrupted electricity, and people didn't, we don't burn whale oil anymore for electrical light. So there have been countless examples of a lot of disruption that happened really fast before we had, um, before we had the cloud or broadband or wireless or Snapchat or the ability to you know, move huge amounts of data to everybody on planet Earth. So next is coming low Earth orbiting satellites, tiny little ones that will give ultra high speed internet to everybody on this planet really cheaply. So everybody is connected to everything. So you got all these really smart kids in China that want to be Bill Gates. They want to be Steve Jobs. And when you go Google Ehang 184, it'll freak you out. These Chinese kids who want to be Steve Jobs, they invented this vehicle. And they built it with their own money they made selling you these drones at Walmart. What a story. I mean, it's unreal. Right out of the blue. Yeah, this is the coolest video. Just go to YouTube, Ehang184, and they tell their story. So don't think that entrepreneurialism is limited to America. It's almost extinct in France, but it's very much alive in China. It's a French word, you know. So everything is going to change. And so we're involved in this electromagnetic pulse stuff. And uh, let me give you another example. Uh, when we mine diamonds, we, I mean, this is a mining-related audience, so we'll talk about mining. So, When we mine diamonds, it usually occurs, it's either alluvial or it's in a kimberlite pipe. And when, you know, diamonds are very, very hard on the moss scale, they're incredibly hard, but they're brittle. They break on their natural cleavage planes. So when we crush kimberlite in a diamond mine, depending on where we set, we set the mesh size, we break about 30% of the value of the diamonds. We tend to break the really big ones, where most of the value is. So with the technology I'm talking about, we can just use electromagnetic pulses, and the kimberlite, which is the matrix in which the diamonds occur, just turns into a liquid. And there are the diamonds. They're released in three billionths of a second. And we don't break any of them. None of them are broken. So a 30% net smelter royalty in all the world's diamond production is disruptive. It's a trivial application of what I'm talking about. We, can, we have a whole new paradigm on how to recover metals out of rock. For the last 400 years, uh, back to Dure Metallica, we recover metal from rock by beating it to death. We crush it and we grind it. And down at the micron scale, when you have very small particles of, say, gold in silica encapsulation, or in arsenopyrite, you can't get the metal out. You, it ends up in the tailings pond. You know, maybe you get 90% recovery. In most mines, you get 90% of the copper, 79% of the silver, the rest goes to the tailings pond. After we grind it down to talcum powder, and we use a huge amount of energy grinding that stuff down to talcum powder. So we think we have a new way to get the metal out of the ground, even down to the micron scale, just by spalting it away, separate. There's, a, there's an acoustic impedance differential between the specific gravity of the gold molecule and the surrounding rock. They have a different specific gravity. So when you put electromagnetic energy through the rock, 
It peels that particle of metal away from the surrounding rock. It's the opposite of crushing and grinding. It's popping it away from the matrix. And uh, we've done work in France with the support of the French government. And we can liberate, like, we get like 99.99999999% of any metal from rock with very little energy, which of course will totally change the definition of ore. Ore is rock that you can theoretically mine at a profit, you know. That's why you have the concept of cutoff grade, this mystical concept of, I mine this stuff, but this low-grade stuff I said over here, this is the good stuff on which I generate cash flow. This whole thing is going to be disrupted. We're sort of last in line, you know. The oil and gas industry is, is a little bit more desperate. You, did you notice that OPEC in Russia just said, oh, no, we're going to go back and throttle back production again. Well, they're losing their power, you know. OPEC's losing their power. Even with the Russians, they're cooperating. Because the rig count uh, for shale just exploded when oil goes from 40 to $50 a barrel. They just turn on these oil factories. And with the technology we're looking at in oil, we could probably get the cost down on that shale to trivial numbers. So we're swimming in an ocean of oil. At the same time, we don't need it as much anymore. And, you know, the mining of oil is the mining of anything else. It's all the same if it's a mine. It's just... In oil and gas, the expiration hole is the mine. You drill the hole, you find an oil field, well, you've just developed your mine. So it's a, it's a superior business to what we do, which is this miserable process of having to build a, a mill that takes nine years and go through this morass of government interference. And people that don't understand where a ham sandwich comes from, by the way, and they don't even understand why you're mining what you're mining. They think it's an inherent evil to be mining anything. And through their ignorance or epitomizing the ultimate in both stupidity and hypocrisy, which is a very bad combination. In, at the Colorado School of Mines, they have these bumper stickers, you know. First one was called Stop Mining, Let the Bastards Freeze in the Dark. That one was quite popular. <laughs> the one I like better is um, Earth First, We'll Mine the Other Planets Later, of course. <laughs> so. Um, we really, really, really see the prospect for extremely disruptive change. If you're mining underground and you put a Wi-Fi system underground, a, a, a smart 18-year-old boy or girl can run that entire mine off of an iPad. All equipment can be completely automated. Anything for a repetitive, especially for a flat-lying ore body, like the potash mines in Saskatchewan, you don't need people down there anymore. Because with, with machine learning, every time a machine does a task, it gets slightly better. It adjusts the air pressure in the tires to reduce energy consumption. It's just a little more effective in driving you know, the front end loader into the muck pile. It just gets better and better and better. Whereas a human being is daydreaming about pornography or what they could eat for lunch. They don't actually get better at repetitive tasks. In fact, they fall asleep and crash into you when they're driving a car. So when we have autonomous, uh, you know, autogenous driving, it'll probably be safer, ultimately, because too many people are texting while they're driving. So all of these changes are happening at an accelerating rate. And uh, we're going to find that certain raw materials are going to win big time. And certain other raw materials are going to be real losers. So when you read the newspapers, they say, oh, commodities are going up or commodities are going down, that's completely idiotic. 
You notice how much the Globe and Mail got smaller? Or, or the Financial Post? Newspapers keep shrinking because the paper gets too expensive. So, what a great time to be alive, you know? And what a great time to change mining and to re-perceive it. Does that mean, I mean, taking that idea of certain commodities will benefit and certain ones won't, do you see that we will not see the kind of secular bull run that we saw leading up to 2007 where we saw everything go up? If we are in the beginnings of recovery now, what do you think distinguishes this recovery from uh, the last bull run that we saw? The Chinese Communist Party has uplifted um, the welfare of human beings at a faster rate and, a, and at a greater scale than has ever occurred in human history. Like, nobody has achieved what China has done. If you, if you believe that cars are good, air conditioners are good, doctors are good, hospitals are good, medical care is good, low child mortality is good, no, one's ever, no one has ever even come close to what the Chinese have achieved. Okay, so what's your question? Are we going to see another commodity bull cycle like we saw in 2008? We, we're still in the same, but, but different commodities are changing. So the, the Chinese government is very good at monitoring what their people think because social media comes through a limited number of nodes, and they know in real time that their people are very pissed off at air pollution, hate water pollution, can't get unadulterated baby powder, you know, like baby's milk, you know, they, they, they go flooding to Japan and they buy all the, all the infant formula that's on the shelf. And the, the Chinese population is cranky about this. So the people that run that government have a very high IQ. They're primarily engineers. They're geologists and they're electrical engineers, these kinds of people. And they say, well, we can fix this. So they're on a jihad to clean the air. Just like England. England cleaned the air. And, uh, but what's different is that the largest company in the world is the China State Grid. It's by far the world's largest corporation. So China's taking 45% of the copper in the world, and about half of it goes to China State Grid, or about a quarter of the copper. They're going to electrify their entire economy. They're doing the Thomas Alva Edison thing on an unbelievable scale. So wind power, you know, thousands and thousands of gigawatts uh, solar power, the price of solar power in China today, this is mind-blowing, is less than two cents a kilowatt hour. They've gone to such a large scale at building these solar panels, they've got it down to less than two cents. That's a lot cheaper than burning hydrocarbon. The only problem is that the sun only shines for five hours a day. So we need grid-scale storage. We have to store excess electricity. And that won't be lithium, that'll be vanadium. The best known technology, there's a lot of ways to store electrical energy. You, could, you can pump water uphill, store it in a dam and let it come back down. The Norwegians do that. You could drive a, a train uphill on a steel rail and let it come back down and generate power. You can compress air in a tavern, you know, use that compressed air to generate power. But the best way we've been able to see is a vanadium redox flow battery. These batteries are much bigger than this building, unlike lithium, which is very flammable and uh, rather temperamental. A vanadium redox flow battery can be charged and discharged at the same time. So once you do that, the whole world changes. You can put solar energy into the battery, you can put wind power into the battery, and you can discharge it at the same time and keep the grid steady. And once you have grid-scale storage, it's bye-bye hydrocarbon, bye-bye coal, adios. 
And the Chinese want to do this at sort of a three gorges damn scale. We're in that business, so we're talking our book. But vanadium is a winner. There, now you learned something. This is worthwhile, right? <laughs> vanadium is usually it's used as native steel, but you make the best batteries with vanadium metal. So I can give you a list, you know, without telling you why, of the metals or the elements of the periodic table that we think are quite attractive. And we don't have to mention the ones that we think are sort of being engineered out of existence. But I did point out that coal is no longer burned in Great Britain. If it's not burned in Great Britain, it won't be burned anywhere in our lifetime. Not so much because we have to argue about the theory of anthropomorphic global warming. That's somewhat controversial because if I tell you that the world's going to get three degrees centigrade warmer a century from now, if you live in Canada or Russia, that doesn't seem like such a bad idea, actually. You know, Mr. Putin doesn't seem to care about that. But um, the air pollution that's engendered by the internal combustion engine is killing you right now. Uh, the British Lancet, which is this country's most prestigious medical journal, has just published a key piece. You can Google it. Just Google British Lancet air pollution. That the closer your home is to a busy street, the higher your incidence of dementia, which is the more polite word for Alzheimer's. We have an explosion of dementia in the world. By the way, the, the human mind-body process was designed to be used. As soon as you retire, you just die. Statistically proven. So they're finding that if you live 50 meters from a busy street and you're breathing that crap out there, your incidence of dementia is twice as high as if you're about 200 meters away. You can see a perfect mathematical correlation. So the Chinese see that. And they, you know, it's central planning. They say, we are going to convert our entire economy to electric and hydrogen fuel cell cars, and we're going to be the world leader in doing it. And when the Donald says, no, 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 we're going back to coal mining. And the Donald says, no, 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 we're, you know, we've got the Secretary of State from Exxon. It gives Xi Jinping the opportunity to do the opposite. He's now leading the movement to the electric car. In fact, you notice that Pony Ma from Tencent took a huge stake in Tesla. Tesla doesn't make any money making cars at all, but has a $75 billion market cap. So there's two schools of thought on Tesla. On this side of the, of the room is all the people that think it's going to go bankrupt. And on, the, on this side of the room is all the thing, people think it's the next Amazon or Apple. Right? And I could argue either side of the proposition. But where Jane. do you truly sit? But you know the problem is it's very hard to kill Tesla. Very hard to kill it. because. The traditional mining analysts who would follow a mining, you know, there's the, like these normal guys that I've encountered all my life, they have this concept of net present value, NPV. NPV is the discounted present value of a future income stream at a discount rate that you select, like 8%. So if, you, if, if, if I sell you my mine for net present value, you have, you have to give it back to me at an 8% discount rate on the 10th year for $1, because you're not paying me for anything beyond year 10 with the magic of discounted interest rates. That's why mining analysts are always looking at a mining asset and calculating net present value and tell you that's what it's worth. So the net present value of Tesla is zero. I mean, they're, they're only making 80,000 cars, they're not making, and they're losing money on every car. How do they have a $75 billion market cap? Well, when Elon Musk goes to the Norwegian State Pension Fund, 
the kids there that pull the trigger on the money are in their 20s. They're on Snapchat, and they think, this guy is ultra cool. He's given a hot foot to the major automobile manufacturers that were planning to build electric cars 40 years from now. It was sort of in their long-range plan, but all of a sudden, he's given them a hot foot. He's disrupted them. He's forced them into this massive industrial transformation. Therefore, we're not going to let this guy die. And every time he needs another three billion, Goldman Sachs goes to somebody like the Norwegian State Pension Fund, and boom, he gets the money overnight. Hard to kill him. Very hard to kill him. No debt. Big market cap. He has big market cap wins. Market cap bigger than Ford. Market cap bigger than General Motors. No earnings. But that's how Amazon was for many years. And Amazon morphed into controlling the cloud. Huge market cap, you know? I mean, Apple's heading for a trillion dollar market cap, opening soon at a theater near you. Which brings me to the a business for stupid people, right? It's definitely not a business for intelligent people because if we were smart, we'd just write an app and sell it for $4 billion. WhatsApp traded for $19 billion. 55 employees, no earnings. These kids wrote this. Facebook paid $19 billion in Facebook paper that then quadrupled, amazingly enough. So you could argue they paid $80 billion for this app that was invented by kids with no cash flow. So when we go back to mining, uh, we're finding a lot of really smart people that are very interested in disrupting mining. You know about planetary resources. They want to mine asteroids. And, and so everything's now possible, you know. A lot of this stuff is actually going to happen. And that's why it's fun to talk about. It's much more fun to talk about all the pain and suffering you go through to permit a mine in Alaska or something like that. You know? Yes. Talking about the vision and the dream is, is more enticing. We, we are running a little bit out of time. I'd, do, I'd be remiss not to one ask One breath, you. one question, and we're out of here. I know. Isn't it crazy? We could, I could sit here all day, but unfortunately, we do have to move along a little bit. I did want to ask you one thing, though, and that is, you know, you, talk, you said a lot of things that referred to it. You know, one thing you said is you kind of look at a table of elements, and you kind of decide, you know, which ones are going to have the yeah. most growth, and you go from there. You but no, well, I would love to be on that, so that list. On that list, you want scandium for lightweighting of aluminum. Scandium aluminum alloy is a miracle alloy that enables you to 3D print with aluminum. Once you can 3D print with aluminum, you can make anything with 3D printing. You can make an elaborate motorcycle. So you can also weld aluminum and make aluminum more ductile with scandium. Uh, for electric cars, to the degree to which we have uh, the pure electric plug-in vehicle, we need cobalt sulfate and nickel sulfate. Spherical graphite to a lesser degree. A tiny bit of lithium. About 4% of the value of the battery is lithium. We'll need some lithium. It's okay. Cobalt has been outperforming lately because cobalt is a byproduct of mining copper or mining nickel, and so there aren't too many pure cobalt deposits around. But cobalt, cobalt sulfate, nickel sulfate, spherical graphite, a little bit of lithium, uh, scandium for aluminum, and of course, the king of all metals, copper, because as you electrify, you increase copper intensity. And aluminum wins too, vis-a-vis -vis steel or iron ore. Iron ore is still good for rebar and building you know, cement buildings and skyscrapers and stuff, but those are the metals that are the lucky sperm club members on the periodic table. Those particular metals are the ones you want to go for. All right, I hope people were taking notes from that list. Silver's not bad. It's used in solar power, uh, you know, and uh, unless we change the proton exchange membrane, platinum is looking quite good. And cleaning up the traditional internal combustion engines, palladium still has a good 10 or 15 years. 
So, you know, there's, you know, you can make arguments for a lot of things. I don't know of a new disruptive technological, truly disruptive use for gold. When I was at the, uh, at the Miami BMO conference, I showed this whole area where my tooth used to be. Yeah, I had that tooth pulled out. I don't think I'm going to put it on a Russian tooth unless I want to look like a Russian mafia. We now have these white enamel teeth, you know, so there's not too much new use for gold, unfortunately. So I'm not like a, a raving gold bug. On the other hand, I could argue in favor of gold as well. well you want me to? I'm sure the gold miners would like you to, yes. But yeah, we'll leave that for another time. Okay. We'll leave so that we're, for we're out of here for now. Thank you very much for the lamp. Thank you very much for uh, the invitation. Well, thank you, Robert, for coming. Thank you.